Good morning, you may be seated. Thanks so much for coming on this rainy, messy day. However, we needed the rain, so thank you, Lord, for the rain. I never feel like when we gather here on Sunday morning that we're here by accident, but certainly not today. And today we may be talking about the most important topic we'll ever talk about. That's not the only time we'll talk about it, but I'm trying to make this epic. I'm trying to make sure there are parts of today that could get a little dry, and I want to make sure that this isn't a yawn fest because it's rainy and we're tired, but this is certainly the most basic topic we'll ever talk about, and it may be the most important. I'm going to read the passage, and I'll set it up in just a second with a couple of highfalutin quotes, but I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're working our way through uh, the book of 1 Peter, and we're talking about how we respond to the culture around us. And I've been saying for a couple of weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about the culture, and we're going to tee that up, and I'm going to do more of that today than I've done so far. But I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. Often at Gateway, we stand out of reverence for God's Word, but let's don't do that today. I'm going to take a break in the middle of, of reading it and explain something. So because of that, I won't ask you to stand. But let's look. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's one of the, those little books at the back of the New Testament. If you have a Bible on your phone, then you just look it up. And I'll be reading verses 9 through 12. Now, verses 9 and 10 we covered briefly last week, but there was this really critical section and a phrase in chapter 9 that we didn't tee off on and we need to. So we'll kind of start with that today because it sets the theme for what we're talking about today and what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, but you, and remember he's talked about those people who reject the message or what Amy DeJani called the amazing news of Jesus, but you, you're different than that. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession or a people who belong to God or a people belonging to him. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That little phrase there, that. You know, there are a lot of different ways to express purpose. Like, I want you to imagine that this is a classroom and Tom Love is the teacher. He's up here and all of us are his students. And, you know, Tom runs a pretty chill classroom. So at at a certain point, Jerry Jones gets up and he's about to walk outside. And Tom says, Mr. Jones, where are you going? And Jerry says, I'm going outside to get my phone. That's a casual way of expressing purpose, to get my phone. You express that purpose through using just the verb, to get. I'm going to get my phone. You don't notice this kind of thing when you speak English. You know, I can remember when the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and when I was in seminary, we had to take Greek, which to me was, it was all Greek to me. Anyways, you know, it was hard for me to understand why we even had to take Greek, and then you run into little phrases like this, and you realize it brings things to light that you just wouldn't have noticed before if you were just reading the English, and this is one of those kinds of things. Because you realize this is not casual. Peter's kind of gone out of his way to express purpose. So let's say now that Tom Love is leading this classroom and he's, you know, he's authoritarian and he wants every I dotted and every T crossed and he wants middle school butts in their seats. Mr. Jones, where are you going and why? And Jerry might say, well, 
I'm going outside so that I might get my phone. So that I might, and that so that, and that, that subjunctive tense is a way of heightening the sense of purpose. I want to be clear, Mr. Love, I'm going outside to get my phone because my mother is having health problems, and I want to make sure that I've got my phone with me just in case something happens. So I'm going out in the lobby so that I might get my phone. That's what Peter has done here. He's added that little conjunction and then the subjunctive after it, so that you might... But you, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people who belong to him so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you. This is big on on Peter's list. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as strangers and aliens, and he's used these, these words over and over again, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul or which war against you. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. All right, so let me begin with four highfalutin quotes to make sure that there's no part of the day where we lapse into a yawn fest. Admittedly, I'm just trying to set us up for how epic the topic is today because here's our topic, and if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Peter is telling us as clearly as he knows how that at least part of the reason that God is doing what he's doing in us is so that we might proclaim his praises. Peter's telling us as clearly as he knows how that at least part of the reason that God is doing what he's doing in us is so that we might declare his praises. All right, so some highfalutin quotes. Let me give you four statements that highlight how important this business of purpose is for us. Understanding our purpose is key to who we are. Thomas Merton was a best-selling author and Trappist monk who exercised considerable spiritual influence over Catholics and Protestant readers alike through the middle of the 20th century. And, and Monk Merton said this, If you want to identify me, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat or do or how I comb my hair, but ask what I am living for. In detail, ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. Understanding our purpose is key to who we are. Understanding our purpose is essential if our lives are to be lived with any beauty and grace. The Brothers Karamazov is one of the most highly regarded novels in literary history. Some of you have tried to read that before. It was written by the Russian Christian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Dostoevsky places this quote on the lips of one of his lead characters. The mystery of human existence lies not just in staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Third, understanding our purpose is key to bearing up under the difficulties of life. Friedrich Nietzsche was a 19th century atheistic German philosopher who believed there was no purpose to life, by the way. But he said this. This is fascinating. Coming from Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And fourth, if our lives are to mean anything, we have to understand our purpose. If our lives are to mean anything, we have to understand our purpose. 
American author and poet and abolitionist Henry David Thoreau said this, it's not enough to be industrious, so are the ants. What are you industrious about? So what's our purpose? That question is without doubt the most basic, probably the most important question for all of us, and it has been since God breathed life into Adam. Our answer animates our lives. It informs who we are. It allows us to live with beauty and grace. Our answer allows us to bear up under difficulty, and it gives our life meaning. Here in this passage this morning, without apology, without caveat or condition, without hesitation, Peter answers this age-old question. He lays down the plumb line for purpose once and for all. Peter says, God is working in your life, and that work is meant to result in you declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Put another way, you have become an extraordinary kitchen in which Chef God is cooking up a masterpiece, and the purpose of that masterpiece is that you would report what he's doing in you. Or put another way, God is doing a great work in you so that you would proclaim his praises, so that you would brag about how awesome he is and what great things he does. That is at least part of the purpose for why you're here and me. That's why these songs that Jordan led us in this morning, are, we're making declarations. And This is our purpose. Our lives are purposeful. They are filled to the brim with purpose. And part of that purpose is to report to a watching world the work that God is doing in us. Now, there are at least four significant challenges to Peter's purpose claim, and we need to be honest about these challenges. So you might think of other challenges, but these are probably the most significant. There's a philosophical challenge, there's a theological challenge, there's a cultural challenge, and there's a practical challenge. So we're going to acknowledge and we're going to briefly describe these four challenges this morning. The third one we're going to describe in some more detail, the social or cultural challenge, because our whole series is about responding to the culture. But we're only really going to answer the practical challenge today because that's what Peter does in this passage, and that'll come last. But I want to give you all the challenges and just let's honestly acknowledge them. So first is the philosophical challenge. And our purpose is challenged philosophically because the very idea of purpose at all is challenged. So I'm sure there have always been people who've despaired that our lives have no purpose, but this belief, as you probably know, has grown in potency and popularity exponentially over the last 100 years, and especially in the last 25 years. Richard Feynman, among many others, was an effective spokesperson for this belief, and Feynman was a well-known theoretical physicist. Uh, He said this, I think it's much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers which might be wrong. I have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of uncertainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure of anything, and there are many things I don't know anything about, such as whether it means anything at all to ask why we're here. I don't have to know an answer. I don't feel frightened not knowing things. I don't feel frightened by being lost in a mysterious universe without any purpose, which is the way it really is as far as I can tell. So... Dr. Feynman does a couple of things in this quote, right? First of all, he asserts that there is certainly no purpose in the universe or in our lives, 
And secondly, he suggests that those of us who believe there is a purpose believe this because we're afraid. So we've dealt with this idea at other times here at Gateway, and we'll deal with it more thoroughly again in the future. We're not going to take the time today, except let me say two things. First of all, there are powerful and compelling, practical and rational reasons to believe there's purpose to the universe. So we don't have to surrender this idea to people that we think are smart. There are very practical and very rational reasons to believe there's purpose to the universe. Secondly, Peter writes with such clarity and confidence that if you read Peter, it just doesn't seem like he's trying to cover up or compensate for anything. Peter does not seem afraid. Peter absolutely believes his life and ours are alive with purpose. That purpose being to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if your sense of purpose is challenged by this kind of philosophical concern, seriously, email me this week and I'll give you some things to read and think about that will arm you with this challenge. Because the universe is purposeful and so are our lives. And if you doubt this, that doubt can become crippling. And it can take away the animation to your life. It can take away your ability to make it through difficulty. Second challenge is the theological challenge. Again, we're not going to deal with these very thoroughly, but there's a theological challenge. Theology is the fancy word for the study of God, study of spiritual things. And there is a theological challenge. Our purpose is theologically challenged because the prevailing spiritual truth today holds that it doesn't matter what you believe. There is no central God idea. All belief is the same as long as it's held sincerely. That's the prevailing view today. So we're forced to ask Peter, okay, Peter, why this God and why is he so needy? I'll explain what I mean. Again, we're not going to take time to fully deal with this challenge, but we need to be honest about it. Peter wouldn't be surprised at this challenge, by the way. He was writing into a world that was awash with other ideas about God. And we live in that same world as well. And for Peter, let's be clear. For Peter, the thing that defined God is Jesus Christ. So let's just summarize what he said so far in his letter. According to Peter, Jesus Christ was and is the cornerstone of all of the work God is doing. According to Peter, it was Jesus' sacrifice and his blood that cleared the way for us to have a connection with God. This is the amazing news that Amy was talking about that she wants to go tell children in DR about. It's through Jesus Christ that we even believe, according to Peter. And most importantly, Jesus Christ is the one who Peter saw raised from the dead. To Peter, Jesus Christ defined God. To Peter, Jesus was the physical manifestation of God himself. The same is true for us here at Gateway. So if that's true, and don't snooze on this, this is kind of an important question that's been asked by many people over the centuries So if that's true, Peter, why is your God so needy? Why is he constantly asking people to tell him how great he is? And there have been serious works written about how unbecoming it is that God constantly is telling people to praise me. Now, first blush, this seems like a legit question, and lots of people, as I said, have asked it. I don't know if you've ever heard this challenge before, but throughout the Psalms and Prophets in the New Testament, it seems like God is ordering us to constantly tell him how great he is. Is his ego really that fragile? That's the essence of the challenge. Well, I like, uh, just just quickly, I like C.S. Lewis's answer to this. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis before. 
according to Lewis, actually, our praise completes our enjoyment of God. And this is part of why he encourages us to give it. Let me explain. Lewis claims that God's desire is that we would experience the full delight of knowing him. And according to Lewis, praising God is just the exclamation point on our delight. And then he offers a cool illustration so you can follow what he's saying. He asks us to imagine a beautiful day. And imagine you go out on this beautiful day and you have a great run and at the end of that run you you need to say to somebody so you walk in the house your family's there and you say what a great day this is you would not think that the day was needy or arrogant because you needed to say how awesome is today the exclamation is really just the end point on our own delight our praise of the day really just completes our enjoyment of the day That's what praising God is like for us. That means, of course, that when we fulfill our purpose, when we praise God for the good work he's doing in us, we are both spreading the amazing news about Jesus, to quote Amy DeJani, and we are completing our own delight in him. The third challenge we're going to describe a little more thoroughly because we're going to be talking about this even more in coming weeks. The third challenge is the social challenge or cultural challenge. Our purpose is is challenged culturally because Christianity, our faith, is no longer at home in our culture. So this morning, bear with me. I know you can read, but I'm going to read a couple of pages from a book by Timothy Keller. And Timothy Keller is a scholar and a pastor in New York City. And Keller is, I believe, one of the most gifted synthesizers in the world today, just bringing ideas together and organizing them and and simplifying them and making them understandable. And he he has a section in a book that he calls Center Church, where he deals with our relationship with the culture. But he begins that section with this, and I especially want you to hear a couple of ideas in this. Keller says this, in the early part of the 20th century, the fundamentalist modernist controversy left much of the United States' educational and cultural establishment in liberal and secular hands, and conservative Christians in America responded by creating a massive network of their own agendas and their own agencies. So they created colleges, periodicals, publishing companies, radio and television networks, and so on. And you're familiar with these. Then he says this, listen. Nevertheless, the major cultural institutions of North America, although they rejected traditional Christian doctrine, continued to inculcate or teach or spread broadly Christian moral values. So while they rejected Christian doctrine, they continued to inculcate Christian values. Most people in society continue to have views largely congruent with Christian teaching on respect for authority, sexual morality, caution about debt and materialism, emphasis on modesty, personal responsibility, and family until the middle of the 20th century. Therefore, most Christians in Western societies felt basically at home in their own culture. 
Sometime in the middle of the 20th century, however, Western culture began to change rather dramatically. In Great Britain and Europe, church attendance fell precipitously after World War II, perhaps for some obvious reasons. And in the United States, while church attendance and religious observance rose initially after World War II, by the late 60s, a major cultural shift was afoot. A basic shift of mood and crisis of confidence occurred with regard not only to the older ideals of patriotism and national pride, but also to traditional moral values, particularly sexual mores. The very idea of moral authority began to be questioned. In the United States, this new mood erupted with a vengeance and and was widely transmitted through the youth culture of the 60s. Popular music questioned all moral authority. Hollywood and television, somewhat more slowly, began to adopt the same tone. He talks about two movies, and he contrasts these movies. One of them represented the old moral system and perspective toward moral system. It was the John Wayne movie, True Grit. So those of you who saw True Grit a few years ago, that was a remake. And then the other one he talks about is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It was one of the first really popular movies with an anti-hero, and it began to undermine and question moral authority. He goes on, in 1952, listen to this, 75% of Americans said that religion was, quote, very important to them personally, end quote. But less than half of that percentage said so by the middle of the 70s. That's continued to drop, by the way. Church attendance dropped from approximately 50% of the population in 1958 to about 40% in 1969, the fastest decline ever recorded in such a short span. It has continued to drop. Even more striking was the decline in church attendance among people in their 20s. In 1957, 51% of the members of that age group, people in their 20s, attended church regularly. By 1971, that number had fallen to 28%. Most noticeable to Christians, however, was how the main public and cultural institutions of the country no longer supported Judeo-Christian beliefs about life and morality. Before these changes, Americans were largely Christianized in their thinking. They usually believed in a personal God, in the existence of heaven and hell, perhaps, and in the concept of moral authority and judgment. And they generally had a basic grasp of Christian ethics, a gospel presentation telling someone the good news about what Jesus has done, could assume and build on all of these things in seeking to convict them of sin and of the need for a Savior and a need for a dramatic change in your life. Now, for more and more Americans, all these ideas were weakening or absent. The gospel message was not simply being rejected, it was becoming incomprehensible and completely hated. The world that Christians in the West had known where the culture tilted in the direction of traditional Christianity, no longer existed. The culture had become a problem the church could no longer ignore. There is a social, cultural challenge to our purpose. Our purpose is challenged culturally because Christianity is no longer at home in our culture. Now, 
look, that's not a complaint. That's just the way it is. And you and I have to be honest about it. And truly, in a brand new way, we can hear what Peter says here in a way that my grandmother never could. When Peter dresses us and says, hey, dear friends, as aliens and strangers in the world, I urge you. That means something entirely different and more potent for you and I than it did for my grandmother. My grandmother lived in a world in which she was not necessarily an alien and a stranger. In fact, she was the predominant culture, the prevailing influence in her culture. That's no longer the case for Gateway Community Church or places like us. Finally, and we'll deal with that more in coming weeks, fourth, there's a practical challenge. How do we do this? How do we praise God for calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light? So, Peter begins to answer that question in verses 11 and 12, and he's going to continue through the rest of the chapter. First, Peter offers us a negative, right? He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The word translated abstain here was sometimes used in commercial transactional context to speak of measuring a distance or putting a distance between two objects. And the word translated sinful calls to mind all of our habits and thoughts and reactions that are not informed by our relationship with God. One commentator described that word sinful like this. He said it's, quote, all that partakes of the self-centeredness and the unhealthiness of human beings, end quote. So Peter is telling us to put distance between ourselves and all of our self-centered, God-forsaking, unhealthy desires. By the way, abstaining like this has a practical benefit because these desires wage war against our souls. And make no mistake, all of us know this war. We know the guilt and shame we experience when we indulge our anger or our lust or our excessive worry or our jealousy or our selfishness. We know what that does to our health and to our relationships. We felt the end result of our secret sin and pursuing it. We know how they rob our time, and we know the ravages of the war they make on our souls. I heard a very helpful illustration uh, this week describing how we should think about this. This person said, think of an animal that you're really afraid of. He offered up an angry rhinoceros or a large spider. (laughs) I would think of others, but uh, if you came around a corner and found yourself facing this animal you're terribly afraid of, what would you do? It's a rhetorical question. He answers it. And he says, of course, you'd run away. Well, as a follower of Jesus, that's how you should feel about a lifestyle of greed or lust or jealousy or injustice or some other sinful desire that you have a tendency to lean into. You should run away. Then he said, think about how you feel if you saw the person you love best in the whole world. And, and add to that, you, let's say you haven't seen them for weeks or months and you saw them walking down the street. What would you do? Why, you would chase after him or her, he said. Of course. Well, that's how you should behave when you think of Jesus and the new life that he's offering you and he's offering to the whole world. It's interesting that, again, Peter calls us aliens and strangers. I want you to notice, don't miss this, the knowledge that we don't belong to this world shouldn't lead us to withdrawal. This knowledge simply means that we take our standards of behavior from another culture instead of the temporary one that surrounds us. 
Okay, so after the negative encouragement, Peter gives us a positive word. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Here's what's interesting about this. In the culture of the Roman provinces to which Peter is writing, Christians were beginning to be accused of wrongdoing. They were accused of, check this out, cannibalism, incest, and seditious secret meetings, and many more. Cannibalisms, can't you see it? Because they gathered together in their meetings, they would say, take the body and blood of Jesus. And they were constantly calling one another brothers and sisters and telling one another how much they loved one another. In fact, there were powerful and demonstrable demonstrations of love within their fellowship. This was scandalous to the Romans around them who profoundly misunderstood their practices and their beliefs. And they didn't worship the Roman gods or the emperor. And it was the state religion to worship the emperor. And so they literally were being accused of doing wrong. They were accused at times of atheism. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote of Christians, they were hated because of their vices. And he gives a whole list of vices that include the ones that I've just given you. They were misunderstood and they were being accused falsely of doing wrong. And and how should they respond, Peter? Should they organize? Should they demand to be heard? Should they rail against the culture around them? Should they flail their enemies on Facebook? No, they should live such good lives among those around them that even though their neighbors falsely accuse them of wrong, these same neighbors might one day be brought to a personal understanding of the joy and delight that our God offers because of their good deeds. In fact, these early Christ followers listened to Peter. Over time, they were increasingly known for helping the poor and the dying. And we have independent Roman testimony of these facts. They were known for rescuing abandoned children. They became known for being hardworking and industrious. These are actual Roman testimonies to these characteristics. And these characteristics eventually won the heart of the empire, just as Peter knew they would. But at the point of this writing, make no mistake, that victory was nowhere in sight. And yet Peter's advice is, abstain from sinful desires and live profoundly good lives. Don't let every new poll about your standing in the culture unnerve you. Don't be demanding and exasperated, young Christians. Don't withdraw into your own cocoon, but abstain from sinful desires, which, by the way, tear you down, and live good lives in front of your neighbors. Look, if this is at least part of the purpose God has for us, then we will never experience all that God has for us unless we walk in this purpose. We will never know ourselves fully unless we live out this purpose. This is why we say at Gateway that our strategy for being church and for growing one another and helping one another grow is, hey, hey, we want to grow up toward God in worship and in toward God's people and community, and we want to grow out toward the world in service. We want to grow in our understanding of what that means and how to do that because we can never be healthy. We can never be spiritually balanced. We can never experience what God has for us unless we're living our lives out in front of people in praise of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful life. And unless there's growth in that area of our lives, unless we're exercising ourselves and figuring out how do I do that better? How do I live my life in such a way that I'm a billboard for the good news of Jesus. 
Unless we're actively pursuing that, we will never experience all that God has for us. We'll never know ourselves fully unless we live out this purpose. We'll never know ourselves. Remember, purpose is a part of forming who we are. We'll never be able to effectively overcome difficulty unless we live out this purpose. Difficulty is going to happen in our lives, and we're constantly going to either be victims or we're going to, oh, wow, woe is me. We'll never be able to live victoriously through difficulty unless we're living out our purpose. And our purpose is you are a chosen people. He grabbed you and rescued you. You are a royal priesthood. I can't tell you how extraordinary your life is and how much power there is in your life. You are a holy nation, set apart, completely different from others. You are a people who belong to him so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our lives will not mean what God intends them to mean if we do not live out this purpose. Father, we thank you so much for your work in our lives. And we, right now, we are profoundly sorry for uh, taking it for granted. Some of us, Lord, we've been following you for a long time, and we just get used to having you in our lives and the protection that that affords and the blessing of that. And it's like, you know, we... You turn on the radio and you hear the speakers, you get new speakers and it's beautiful sound and then after a while you get used to it and you're not amazed anymore. And God, we've gotten used to your work in our lives, your presence. And we're sorry. Remind us this morning how electric it is knowing you, the change that you've made. And then, Lord... Inspire us, call us, equip us, send us to report, to proclaim, to declare your praise, to brag about you and the work that you're doing in us. Lord, I pray this week that you would help us do what we must to abstain from sinful desires which war against our own soul. You know, Lord, the war is not only without, it is within. And primary player in that war is our own desires. Desires which don't honor you and which don't seek you or desires which are ungoverned. Help us to abstain And Lord, help us to live godly lives. Help us to live such good lives among our neighbors and our coworkers that they'll glorify you. So I want you to keep your eyes closed for a second. If they haven't been closed, then close them so that we can do this with some uh, anonymity. I'm going to give you three options and I'm going to let you choose the one. And this is just by way of you making confession to God. I'm going to let you choose the one you struggle with the most this morning. 
and you'll stand during in a moment representing the one that causes you the most struggle so option number one is just understanding and connecting to this purpose for my life option two gets to the practical option two is abstaining from sinful desires now we know that's a struggle for all of us but is that the prevailing struggle for you this morning then you'll stand for that one and the third option is just living such a good life in front of my neighbors in front of my coworkers in front of my friends at school or in front of the students at school or in front of my employees or my employer that they see a billboard of Jesus God's hand on my life where's the area of struggle for you is it knowing and connecting to this purpose is it abstaining from sinful desire is it living a good life so I'm going to ask eyes closed if for you this morning the point of greatest struggle is knowing and connecting to this purpose would you stand if for you this morning the biggest remain standing remain standing if for you the biggest struggle this morning is abstaining from sinful desires would you stand If for you this morning, the biggest struggle is just living a good life, the kind of life that reflects him, would you stand? So, Father, you have heard our confession. Now, for a few of us, this really represents a deal here. And we have prayed a prayer a hundred times, but I know in my own experience, Lord, sometimes hidden in the mystery of who you are, you'll answer it on the hundred and first. And I ask in Jesus' name this morning that you would answer, that we would feel animated by this high and holy purpose, that you would strengthen us and help us to abstain from sinful desire as we battle anger or jealousy or worry or lust. And Father, equip us, train us to live good lives that people around us go, wow, why are you like that? Hear us. And hear us this morning, Lord, as we complete our own enjoyment of you, as we praise you, I mean, really, when we do that, we're joining the universe that sings your praise. This morning, we sing with all creatures that you're the best, and we brag about you.
observe the three-minute rule and then go in peace, and it was great having you.